Oh, Father, how we thank you for the truth of those words we just sang, that we are graven on your hands. We thank you that when you look at us, God, that you look at us through the work of Christ, you see his righteousness placed on us. We thank you that we are forgiven because of Christ, and therefore we don't in any more Uh, We're no longer your enemies. We are justified. We are declared right with you. How we thank you, Father, for that wonderful reality. Lord, we have such good news in the gospel. We pray that you would help us this morning as we ponder that good news, that you might ignite a fire within us, a flaming passion that we would make known that good news in a far more effective way than we have up to this point, and that you would do so for the glory of your great name and the salvation of many souls. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The question I want us to begin to consider this morning is this. How did a small band of Christians, in the book of Acts chapter 1, it starts off with 120 of them. Just 120. How did this small band of Christians dramatically end up influencing the Roman Empire in such a way that Christianity became, in a sense, an empire within the empire in the first 300 years after Jesus' ascension. What can explain this worldwide impact that was somehow pulled off and made by rather ordinary people? I mean, you can certainly say it wasn't because of the military might of these people, because none of these Christians were armed. They were not fighting with a sword. They were not threatening people by violence and therefore advancing their movement. We can obviously agree that it wasn't because of some sophisticated use of technology, and therefore that was how the word got um, proclaimed far and wide throughout the empire, because obviously that wasn't even available for the last Uh, for 2,000 years after that. It wasn't probably because of some uh, complicated, innovative marketing scheme that that somehow somebody had a clever advertising slogans and these were the things that influenced them. They didn't have uh, any kind of social media. So that seems the answer is something that boils down as simple as this. The impact of these Christians on their society was due to the fact that Jesus commissioned Holy Spirit-empowered witnesses. Witnesses. Not geniuses. Not wonder workers. Not social engineers. Not foot soldiers so much. He put in place eyewitnesses who would then faithfully and boldly tell what they had seen and what they had heard about Jesus Christ. His life, His death, and His resurrection. It's interesting because many of these followers of Jesus made an impact because of the type of witness that they bore to Jesus and the good news of the gospel. Because many of them, they sealed their witness with their own blood as they themselves died as a witness for Christ. And the 
term that we have for witness in the Greek New Testament, martyr, from which we get the English word martyr, obviously came to be associated with those who faithfully witnessed about Christ even unto death. It's Tertullian who wrote in around the year 200 AD. He says, the blood of Christians is seed. It is the bait that wins men to our school, he said. We multiply whenever we are mowed down by you, he said to all of his uh, skeptics and opponents. And even the gospel, I mean the book of, I call it the second book of Luke in Acts, uh, it is Stephen who is one such witness. It is Stephen who in the chapter there, seven, his defense of the gospel of Jesus in rendering his faithful proclamation of truth was cut short when the crowd to whom he was speaking all of a sudden began pummeling him with rocks and eventually he was put to death by stoning. But interestingly enough, on that occasion in which Stephen, by his witness, by his martyrdom, someone was witnessing his death and how he died and what he said at his last moment of life. And that witness to the death of Stephen ended up becoming himself a witness to the good news and gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Paul who was there. It is Paul who was obviously impacted probably by that event and by the fact that God worked in his heart, obviously, in a very powerful way. And then it is Paul who now we're reading about in the book of Acts, who is used by God as a witness to make known the good news far and wide within the Roman Empire of his day. I'd like you to turn with me to more, this morning to Acts chapter 21. And we're going to begin with the end of chapter 21 and read through chapter 22, which is a bit of a lengthy reading. If you'd rather not read along, my translation might be different than yours, uh, then feel free to just listen. But I'm going to try to read it in such a way that we get the flow of what happens here as we consider some basics. What are some basics of being a witness for Christ? I think we find a number of them in this wonderful text of Scripture. Here we are in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul is there. He has uh, somehow survived a sort of a mini-riot. And uh, he says here at the end of verse 39, when he's uh, being talked to by the soldiers, the end of chapter 21, he explains who he is. He says, but Paul said, I am a Jew, a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, or, or you would say in Aramaic, saying, and then you should just keep on reading because it really is, it shouldn't be a chapter division here. Verse 1 of chapter 22. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect or Aramaic, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. And I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From them I also received letters to the brethren and started off 
for Damascus in order to bring even those who were with who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And it came about that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me beheld the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go on to, into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him. And he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Did you catch that? Verse 15. You will be a witness for him. And now, verse 16, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And it came about when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was standing by approving and watching out for the cloaks of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. And when they stretched him out with tongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned and when the centurion heard this he went to the commander and told him saying what are we about to do for this man's a roman and the commander came and said to him tell me are you a roman and he said yes and the commander said i acquired this citizenship with large sum of money and paul said but i was actually born a citizen and therefore those who were about to examine him immediately let go of him and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was Roman and because he had put him in chains. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and brought Paul down and set him before them. What I'd like to do with this text this morning, there's a lot in here, obviously, but I'd just like to glean from this text Four basics of being a witness for Christ. Four basics for being a witness for Christ. The first is this. No one will ever be an effective witness 
for Christ and for the gospel unless that person has undergone an authentic conversion. Authentic conversion. Paul made it very clear. In telling his story, he never held back the fact that he was a person who had lots of religious devotion in his life. He had a very long record of rigorous rule-keeping that he did. And yet he it also admitted that his heart was very rebellious against God. Actually, in 1 Timothy, in telling his testimony, Paul recounts the fact that he admits he was not only a blasphemer toward God in all of his religiosity, but he also his heart overflowed with a violent hatred toward anyone who had different views of religious practices than he or who offended his religious standards. So what he was admitting to was the fact that he himself was a rebel against God's sovereignty, against God's rule and God's reign. And so Paul here in this account, as he tells his own story of his conversion, he recounts to his audience that he was brought to his knees dramatically, sovereignly, unexpectedly. God interrupts him while he's on his way to Damascus in order to arrest more and more followers of Jesus. And in his being humbled in this way, verse 6 says he's blinded. He's not able to see. And therefore, what blinded him, if you look at verse 11 carefully, you'll notice that the word he uses there is not just brightness, but it's a word that literally means glory. He encounters the glory of Jesus Christ. And Jesus himself confronts Paul, brings him to his knees, and his unholy heart is exposed before the holy Son of God. It's a fascinating account in which uh, here is, the next thing we read is this guy Ananias who's on the scene. Paul is prepared to receive a gospel witness and he is brought to the point of understanding that he is way out of line. He is a person who has broken uh, way out of his proper role in life before God and his holy sovereignty. And so here's Ananias, who I would believe is deserving of a courageous witness award. Because here's a man that was punishing, arresting, and, and putting Christians to death, and an Ananias comes up to him and brings him gospel witness and urges Paul to call on Jesus' name. Verse 16. What does he mean by that? Call on Jesus' name. It involves admitting his helplessness. That he desperately needs help. He needs to be rescued from his sin, his rebellious and blasphemous heart attitude toward God. And the response that Ananias is urging him to do is nothing more than an echo of what Joel had told his audience in the Old Testament, the prophet Joel, had told the people of his generation, and Peter quotes that on the day of Pentecost, earlier in Acts 2, saying, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Paul, at that point, repents. He believes, and in Christ he lays aside his long record of righteous deeds, and he receives by faith the righteousness of Christ. He no longer is trying to gain his righteousness. He receives the righteousness of Christ by faith. And Paul's heart was changed. 
What an amazing change. He went from despising Jesus and defying Jesus to devoting his life to serving Jesus, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and honoring Jesus Christ. My friend, none of us will ever be a gospel witness until we're born again. Has the Holy Spirit ever brought about in you a transformation of your heart? Where you have understood the weight of your sin, how many times you have, you have offended God and His holy sovereignty, realizing that you are deserving of punishment and damnation of your sins, and that you're in need of a new heart. It's amazing when you think about it, what we need most before we become an effective witness is we need the Holy Spirit to do a work in us of imparting to us new life imparting to us new desires and new longings and new attitude toward sin and toward Christ and toward what it means to live in a life that glorifies God. Paul was very clear that in his gospel witness, he did not achieve his salvation. or He did not achieve standing before God because of his goodness. He was a person who was saved by Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. He didn't save himself. I find it helpful to again re- realize what that gospel message is. Mark Dever has a very good summary at one point. He says, to be a Christian is not merely to live the power of positive thinking. To be a Christian is not merely to do anything that we can do ourselves. The gospel calls for a more radical response than any of these things allow for. The gospel, you see, is not simply an additive that comes to make our already good lives better. No, the gospel is a message of wonderful good news that comes to those who realize their desperation before God. Paul was desperate. He came to the end of his rope, and God brought him to that moment, and God gave him a new life. God changed him from the inside out. Paul once was dead in his sins. Now, he said, I have been made alive in Christ. And now going forward, he said, this is what I've seen and this is what I've heard. And that's my story. So to be a gospel witness, it requires a genuine, true conversion. Secondly, A second element of being a gospel witness has to do with the attitude of the witnesses to the one who saved them, to the one who set them apart. And so I would call that full consecration. Secondly, full consecration. You see, a gospel witness actually belongs to Christ. A gospel witness is not our own. We don't just belong to ourselves. We don't just do our own thing, but we belong to our Redeemer who bought us with his own blood. If you look in the text here carefully, I think it's fascinating. Verses 8, 10, and verse 19 of chapter 22, we get the sense that this change starts happening in in Paul as he tells his story. Notice clearly that instead of being a person who blasphemed Jesus, who defied Jesus, who showed such disdain toward the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, 
he changes his attitude by his words and he begins to to refer to Jesus with the respectable address of Lord. Did you see that? Verse 8. I answered, who are you, Lord? The word there literally means master, supreme one. It was the same name that was given to Caesar at times. He was called Lord. And so what Paul is saying here is there's been a whole change in his attitude toward Christ that now he sees himself as subservient to Christ and yielded to him. And that's really what witnesses are to be, right? Yielded to their master. Having called upon God to save us through his death and resurrection from the dead, then Paul goes on and was urged to confess Jesus as Lord in baptism. Verse 16. Now let me make it very clear here. This baptism did not change his status before God at all. Not one bit. But the waters of baptism are actually unable to cleanse anyone of any of the deep stains of guilt that run deep in our hearts. Let's be very clear about that. It may look that way in the text, the way it's worded, but there's some verbs there you need to understand are past tense, it says in this text. And it says, says, arise and be baptized. Uh, Washing away is actually uh, the past tense. Having washed away your sins, having called upon His name is the way it should read. In other words, all who have been justified by faith and have been declared right with God by faith alone and have already been fully forgiven and therefore enjoy peace with God because of the death of Christ as the giving them now being reconciled on the basis of Christ, those who are truly believers are commanded to be baptized after they have trusted Christ, after they're saved. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and be baptized. In other words, baptism is the believer's public portrayal of his or her union with Christ. And the real purpose of baptism here is this. Baptism is Jesus' prescribed means of making a public profession that Jesus is Lord and Master of one's life. Baptism signifies that our old life before Christ has died, and that's over. And therefore, we've now been raised to newness of life in my new union with Christ now as a follower of Christ. And so it seems to me this principle of encouraging Paul to be baptized and to confess Christ as Lord speaks to the fact that our effectiveness as witnesses is obviously going to be impaired, if not completely compromised if we're not committed to following Jesus as Lord, committed to following him in obedience and submission. See, Jesus commissioned his witness. He didn't just ask for volunteers. He didn't just say, okay, whoever wants to serve for, you know, a little bit of time in your life till you you don't like it anymore, then come on and join my team. No, he calls us to fully surrender. He commands us to go and make disciples. And then you look at verse 21, Paul in his story again indicates that he was told by Christ who commanded him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Being a gospel witness means living under the authority of one 
who is commander and Lord. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul understood the ministry of being a gospel witness as being compared to someone who's sent on behalf of a, someone who's a king or authority as their ambassador. We are commissioned to represent this one and to speak on their behalf. Now I would say it's safe to say that if your life is characterized by obvious areas of compromise, if there are ungodly patterns of life, it's clear that you're not going to represent very well your master and your Lord. Now I say that to also balance it out with this statement, that is to say that every gospel witness is not perfect. I'm not suggesting that any of us are. As a matter of fact, the more that we understand about uh, what it means to serve Christ, we know how far short we have fallen. But we are known for a pattern of life, it seems to me, that ought to be showing a greater and greater yieldedness to Christ and His authority and commands. Paul himself didn't continue in his old habits. The habits that he had pursued for years and years quite passionately, he had a different bent in his life, a different direction in his life. As a gospel witness, he began moving in a new direction. He was now considered himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And therefore, he has been sent on mission for Jesus. So gospel witness must begin by taking steps first to bring one's life into alignment with Jesus' commands. Otherwise, our witness is misleading. It makes no sense to call people to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ when we ourselves are living in defiance of Christ, in open rebellion against our sinless Savior and our sovereign King. It makes no sense. So that's the second point I wanted to make. The first is a genuine conversion. The second is uh, obviously full consecration. Thirdly, gospel witness involves bold proclamation. Here in the book of Acts, whenever you see a gospel witness making known the good news of Jesus Christ, you can just sense that there's an element of boldness at work there. If you look at chapter 4, verse 13, uh, 4, verse 31, chapter 14, verse 3, it clearly the text emphasizes the boldness of those who were making proclamation. And this is no different here in this one. We have the example of Ananias, who boldly speaks to, to Paul. Uh, and then we also have here Paul speaking up before this crowd that is like a riot, about ready to riot, and about ready to rip him apart. It's interesting that Stephen also doesn't just indicate that in his gospel witness, he doesn't just emphasize kind deeds done to other people. But Stephen obviously did more than kind deeds, just like Paul was doing more than kind deeds. He was looking for that opportunity when the Lord opened the door to make a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ explaining what Jesus had done, what God had done through Jesus in his, res in his life, resurrection, and crucifixion. So my point here is that being a witness for Christ obviously involves, the first of all, the sharing of our lives. That's a given. If you think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul speaks of 
sharing his lives with the people there in Thessalonica. He lived among them. He got to know them. He took a concern for them. He was involved in their lives. But then he goes on to add to that, that having done those things, then he says, I imparted the gospel, I proclaimed the gospel, exhorting you, encouraging you, imploring those that I've shared my life with. It's more than just serving other people with acts of kindness. It's more, but it must include, a loving of other people, showing compassion toward the widows and orphans and the poor. Yes and amen. Those are things that we can and must continue to do. But gospel witness calls for making known truth. Truth about who God is. Truth about who we are in our sin. Truth about who Jesus is and what He's done to save sinners. To call people to respond in faith and repentance. Now there are any number of ways to make that truth known. I think about how Jesus was so incredibly gifted with asking questions. He would ask a question and get people to talk about that matter, to take it into a spiritual direction. Next thing you know, he's talking about heart issues. It's amazing. Uh, Paul was known to use dialogue where he's interacting and having a give and take back and forth with people in larger contexts at times. There's all different ways in which we can be involved in making known truth. But one thing I want to emphasize is it comes a point where we need to at least make truth known in our witness as gospel witnesses for Christ. But let's be very clear, we're not responsible for how people respond to that good news that we proclaim. The gospel of Jesus doesn't always receive a welcome response. That's true. Some people find it offensive. And why is that? Well, John 3 tells us that the gospel oftentimes exposes evil deeds. It often exposes the wickedness of human hearts. It's the gospel that eliminates all human pride by those who try to earn standing before God, by somehow trying through their achievement and somehow improving themselves, that somehow they're going to become more acceptable to God. The gospel just turns that upside down and destroys that. Yet, nonetheless, we are called to speak the words of life, pointing those who are dead in their sins to the only one with resurrection power to impart eternal life. And we are privileged, indeed, to proclaim the good news to those who, in facing eternal separation from God, are desperately in need of hearing words of life. So is that something you pray for? That's something you're looking for? That's something that you are saying, Lord, give me opportunities. Open up a door for me to share the good news of the gospel with someone this week. Paul was obviously quite passionate about it. And I want to just point out one more thing here as we um, look for elements of a gospel witness. And that is the outward engagement. Outward engagement. Here I believe we see a dramatic change in this particular part of Acts. It's so much different than the beginning part of the book of Acts. In the first chapter of Acts, we have the command given to them to, they, they are to remain in Jerusalem and they're not to go anywhere and they're not to be um, uh, seeking to, to cross any kind of barriers or go anywhere else. Just stay right there in Jerusalem. Well, that didn't last too long. 
Because what, what happened then is the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, and then soon thereafter they were given the command, now go. Go and make known the gospel far and wide. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't sit in Jerusalem and wait for everybody to come and, and come for you to give them answers. You're to go to them. As we read in Matthew 28, go into all the world. Go and make disciples of all nations. Mark chapter 16, preach the gospel to all creation. So indeed, that's what Paul was doing. Here he was as an effective witness, taking steps to communicate and reach out to the audience that he's seeking to bring the good news to. And here in this particular account, he speaks the language of his people, the ones he's trying to reach. He speaks Aramaic. Now, clearly, the text emphasizes that that is a significant thing. It's as if his audience now really began to listen. They really began to, to, to focus on what he had to say. There is something to be said of speaking the language of your people and to speak politely, which he did. He started off in a very polite approach. But beyond that, he spoke in what I call a contextualized message. That's just a fancy word. But it basically means that he conformed his message to his audience so his audience would understand it more clearly. He actually fashioned what he was saying that he knew this would help resonate with the people he was speaking to. If you read this account, Paul tells his testimony, by the way, about three times in the book of Acts. This one, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, and so he gives his Jewish background a lot of emphasis. He brings in Gamaliel. He brings in his, his growing up in Jerusalem. He brings in all of his Jewish practices. He, he brings in uh, Aramaic into his conversation, whatever. He's, he's seeking to make it known that he's connecting to this Jewish audience. Where it's totally different in Acts 17, when he's speaking to the philosophers, the pagan philosophers there, in Athens, he has an entirely different approach, quoting their authors and people that they are familiar with. And so Paul made sure that those that he spoke to could understand what he meant. So here he's going to use the Old Testament in talking to them. Now, this is why it's helpful to remember our audience when we're speaking to them. I came across recently uh, an article by a woman who has been working in Africa for a number of years, and she wrote an article and said, please don't use gospel bracelets, the wordless gospel bracelets in Africa. And she went on to explain, now maybe you don't know what those are, but that's just a leather band with little colored um, beads on there, and each bead stands for a different element of, of the gospel, simple gospel presentation. You know, there's a black one, there's a white one, there's a green one, there's a yellow one, a red one, whatever. And then uh, you use those as a means of talking about those things. And she went on to say that one of the reasons why is because African traditional religion, so many of them involve the shamans or the uh, witch doctors who then somehow try to put spells on people or some kind of objects of power that they try to influence on people, and they'll do so by putting a little bracelet around their wrist. And so she's saying, if you've got this bracelet around people's wrists, it gives the impression that you're now trying to put power on them as if you're doing what some of these witch doctors similarly would do. The point she's trying to make is you need to know your audience. There are effective ways and ineffective ways to make the gospel known depending on who your audience is. 
And so one of the things that seems to me that's helpful is get to know your audience by asking good questions. Asking good questions to understand what do they think, what do they assume, what do they believe about basics of their world view, if you will. There are many assumptions that need to be noted and clarified. And so we should be careful not to just go fast forward into all those if you haven't at least asked a few questions about what they think or assume or believe about themselves or about God. Also, you'll notice that Paul here, interestingly enough, in the count, is interrupted midstream. Did you notice that? It's very clear. The text emphasizes he is just, just getting going. And boom, everything stops. Boom, he's now made to get the Romans involved. They start interrogating him. He's about ready to be uh, flogged and, and punished further. All these things begin to set in motion. To me, it's another principle of the important understanding that when we're engaged with other people, remember it oftentimes is a process. We don't always seem to think that we're going to accomplish all of our evangelistic efforts in one setting. Paul understood that gospel witness takes time. Most of the time, people don't hear and respond to the gospel in one sitting. And here he is, hauled off, arrested by the Romans, and he's on the go now from the rest of the book of, of uh, Acts. He's now either held in prison or he's on his way to another trial, going somewhere else. And on the way, he keeps sowing gospel seeds with any and all that God brings into his path, realizing that he doesn't know how much time he'll have with any particular one as he shares along the way. I think that's a helpful reminder for those of us to remember it's a process. And so it's oftentimes adding a little bit here, a little bit there, to people that we engage with about gospel truth. Now I want to conclude this morning by just reminding us of the power of ordinary gospel witnesses. It is these people, it was these people that turned the Roman Empire upside down. Common folks who accounted for Christianity spread. There is one church leader called Justin who, was, who credited his conversion to two things. First was he was so impressed by the fearlessness of these Christians who died for the faith. And the second thing was a conversation he had with an old man in the city of Ephesus on the beach. He said that during his years of spiritual searching, Justin had been reading philosophers after philosophers. He was searching and couldn't find answers for the meaning of life. And one day, he runs into this elderly man who engages him in a conversation about spiritual matters. And in this one conversation, Justin said he never saw that man after that. But that man had an impact in his life, not on that moment, not on that day, but soon thereafter, the Lord began to work in his heart, and he soon thereafter had a love for the prophets. He began to read the prophets, and he began to also have an interest in the friends of Christ. In other words, he was interested in what other Christians had to say, and soon thereafter, he himself was converted. And interestingly enough, through the, through the witness, faithful witness of one elderly man, nameless man, Justin, years later, became Justin the martyr, Justin the witness, Justin the one who laid down his life in his witness for Christ. Let us be faithful gospel witnesses for Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to take to heart what it means to be changed by the gospel. We pray that the power of the gospel would change the hearts of all who are here today, Lord. May it never be that we are a people who are trying to just be about spreading religion in this world. But Lord, help us, we pray, to be a people whose lives have been changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our hearts are being changed. We pray, Lord, that you would bring to faith, saving faith, any who are here today, Lord, who maybe have grown up being around churches, but have never fully surrendered to Christ and never really seen a heart change that now has a love for Christ, a love for the truth, a love for the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would impress those things just like you did in Apostle Paul, stopping whoever has been busily going through life. Bring them to their knees, Lord, until they cry out to you, Lord Jesus, save me and give me this life that I so desperately need. We thank you that you're loving and gracious and kind. You do these things undeservingly. And we pray, Lord, for those of us who have had change of hearts, give us, we pray, boldness. Give us compassionate for the, compassion for the lost. Give us, we pray, insight into trying to speak in, in ways that are understandable to those around us. And give us patience, Lord, in our witness. Help us not to give up. Help us to be focusing on being faithful and let you trust you with the results. And we lay these things before you, Lord, because we long to see people know you and to see your glory spread in this area of the world and all around the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.